This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 8th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. We've got a big show this week. Jessica Metcalf talks about the microbes that do the dirty work of decomposing bodies. Emily Underwood describes new hope and new mysteries surrounding a migraine treatment that seems to work for even chronic migraines. And of course, David Grimm is back with the latest from our online daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on a semi-naked black hole. Supermassive black holes are typically found at the center of galaxies, cloaked in dense clouds of stars. But a newly spotted black hole might be defying this convention. What's so unusual about it? Well, Sarah, we know that there are supermassive black holes out there. And these are black holes that can weigh up to billions of times the mass of our sun. We also know that there are relatively tiny black holes out there. And these are black holes that um, maybe are just several tens of times the mass of our sun. But nobody's really found definitive evidence of what astronomers call a medium-sized black hole. This would be something that probably weighs somewhere between 100 and 1 million suns. This black hole is not at the center of a galaxy either. Is that correct? Well, so that's what's confusing about this. First of all, we don't know it's a medium-sized black hole, but there is some intriguing evidence that it is. All this is occurring in a object called SDSS J1126 plus 2944. They always have great names like that. This is actually a merger of two galaxies. It's about a billion light years away from us. What's interesting about it is it does seem to have a supermassive black hole at its center. But off to the side, as one of the astronomers calls a little beauty mark off to the side, there's another black hole. And what's interesting about this other black hole is it seems to have 500 times fewer stars around it than the black hole at the center of this object. And what they can't tell from these measurements is how big this beauty mark black hole is, right? They can't tell how big it is. That's why they can't say definitively that it's a medium-sized black hole. But the fact that it has so few stars around it is really unusual because supermassive black holes have tons and tons of stars around them. And that's because they exist in these galaxies, the center of these large galaxies that have lots of stars. But this black hole that's off to the side 
it seems like it may be in the center of its own small galaxy that merged with the galaxy that is home to the other black hole. So there's two competing theories here. One is that this off-to-the-side black hole, which has a lot fewer stars, maybe those stars somehow got stripped away, in which case it wouldn't really tell us anything about the size of this black hole. But the other theory is that this black hole actually formed in a much smaller galaxy, and that's why it has a much smaller amount of stars around it, which also su could suggest that it actually has a much smaller size, not a tiny size, but a much smaller size than the supermassive black hole. Why is this so difficult to figure out? Well, the instruments aren't really telling us the size. And so scientists are going to have to use an instrument that really gives us a sense of this object's mass before we can definitively say whether it is indeed a medium-sized black hole. Next up, we have a story on reprogramming ants. Social insects like bees and ants have defined roles within their colonies. But do those roles and behaviors come from their genes? Well, a new study suggests that no. There are other ways to organize ants with epigenetics. Let's just get a quick rundown of epigenetics, Dave. Well, when we talk about epigenetics, we're usually talking about chemical modifications of DNA, chemical groups that are placed on certain parts of the DNA that actually can affect how a gene works, whether it expresses itself, whether it's turned off, whether it's turned on how much of it is produced in the cell. But there are other types of epigenetics effects as well, and that's one of those that's dealt with in this study. It's, it actually has to do with proteins called histones, which basically serve as a scaffolding for DNA. What happens in this case is a chemical entity called an acetyl group that attaches to histones can actually loosen a histone's tie to DNA, and that would allow nearby genes to be more active. So they were looking at... DNA modifications, which are not necessarily inherited, to see whether or not they could alter the roles of ants. What kind of roles of ants were they looking at? They're looking at carpenter ants, and they're looking at two different casts of ants. One cast is called minors, which are smaller. The other cast is called majors, which are bigger and have big heads. And you can actually see a photo and a video of these guys on the site. And what do minors and majors do? They have different jobs in ant society. The miners tend to forage for food. It's a little less clear what the majors do, but because of their size, researchers think they may play a role in potentially defending the ant nest. And when they applied a drug, in this case, that altered the epigenetic marks on the DNA of these ants, what did they find? This drug they used is actually a drug that's used in people for bipolar disorders. And what it does in the ants is it inhibits an enzyme called histone deacetylase, which removes the acetyl groups we were talking about from DNA, which dampens gene activity. And what the researchers found is that when they treated both the minors and the majors with this drug, the minors revved up their foraging and even started taking the job of scouting, which is a different job for them. And the majors began to forage and scout as well. That's something they typically don't do. So this treatment really changed the jobs of these ants in this society. Why might having an epigenetic mechanism for organizing jobs within a colony be better than, say, a purely genetic approach where you inherit what your parents did and that's what you do, that kind of thing? This really gets back to nature versus nurture. The problem with DNA is that it's hardwired, and you don't necessarily want to be hardwired for a particular behavior if your circumstances are changing. For example, say the ant colony is really running out of food, but all the ants are genetically wired not to go scouting for food, or most of them are not wired to go scouting for food, that's going to be a big problem. But if you can have this lack of food 
trigger these epigenetic modifications to the DNA of ants so that they begin changing their behaviors and going out and searching for food, now you have a much more flexible ant society than you had before. Lastly, we have the story on dancing dinos. Certain birds do a little dance in the lead up to winning a mate. Did their ancestors, dinosaurs, do the same? I'm thinking that if dinosaurs did dance, they were not very light on their feet. Yeah, especially if we're talking about dinosaurs like Acrocanthosaurus, which lived about 110 million years ago and was one of the largest carnivores at its time. The idea of this dinosaur doing some sort of dance before mating, well, a little hard to picture. Because they're like six tons, is that right? They're six metric tons, 11 meters long. Oh, wow. And the problem we have with almost everything we want to know about dinosaurs is that there's not a lot of ways of getting evidence for behavior at that time. What is the evidence here? The evidence comes from a few sites in Colorado. They're fossilized foot scrapes that have been preserved in Dakota sandstone. And the sandstone dates from about 145 million to 66 million years ago. Now, you can see pictures of these foot scrapes on the site, but basically what they look like is they're parallel double gouges in the ground, and some also include the clear outlines of three-toed footprints. So it looks like a foot went into the ground and scraped around a little bit. This must have been, as we said, some noisy dancing. (laughs) Is there any other kind of behavior that this might be evidence of? It's possible that the dinos made these marks when they were digging for food or for water. Maybe they were marking territory or maybe even when they were building nests. But the researchers said they examined all those possibilities, and they don't feel like the marks they're seeing match up well with those types of behaviors. They also look like modern woo traces. Is that the scientific term? I don't know if that's a scientific term, but, I mean, that's what's important here is that a lot of birds today, whether it be parrots or puffins, do this courtship dance. They make similar marks And what's really interesting about that is birds are essentially dinosaurs. They're the last vestige of dinosaurs we have left. So it makes sense that if dinosaurs did this, then birds would do it today. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about the Iceman. This is a 5,000-year-old human being that has been preserved in ice uh, for many, many years and discovering what was in his stomach and what that can tell us about human migration and even diet at the time. Also a story about whether Roman toilets, which have been heralded as this great advance in hygiene, really had the health benefit that some people think they did. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we wrote a story about a maker of brain games for your smartphone coming under fire. Also a story about whether the U.S. is doing enough to oversee risky pathogen research. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Despite what television crime shows would have us believe, there is still a lot we don't know about corpse decomposition. I spoke with Jessica Metcalf about the microbial communities involved in taking apart dead animals and how these assemblies might lead to better estimates of time of death. When a human or an animal dies, it decomposes and microbes or all these small organisms that are invisible to the naked eye play an important role in this decomposition process. We compared how predictable the waves of microbes are 
that are involved in decomposition. And we did this using both a mouse experiment in a lab, which allows us to really control conditions, as well as in an outdoor, more realistic scenario with humans. And we discovered that particular groups of microbes become abundant at very specific times during decomposition, and that this pattern holds regardless of environment, season, or the corpse characteristics. And so what this allows us to do is allows us to calibrate a microbial clock. Then we can take an unknown sample and say, this comes from a person that's been decomposing for, for example, two weeks or 10 days. I was really surprised reading this study, how many unknowns there are about this kind of thing. Judging from, you know, CSI-type shows, you think we already know all about what happens to corpses. What are some of the major things that you were trying to discover about mammalian corpse decomposition going in? Forensic scientists have known for a really long time that microbes are really important in decomposition. However, we just didn't have the right technology or the right molecular tools to really be able to study this process until about the last decade. Our group, which does a lot of microbial ecology, we study a lot of human microbiome-type projects, we started out in a previous publication by showing that in a mouse model, when all environmental variables and host variables are controlled, we use very similar mice at a very similar age, the very similar weight in lab conditions that are all controlled, we see a very, very, very predictable succession of microbes. And so what we did in this study is we wanted to go for, okay, so now let's throw in some variables. What happens when you have different environments? And and how we did this is we use different soil types, again, in a mouse experiment. Then we wanted to know, okay, what if you do this outdoors with insects and scavengers and rain events and across different seasons? And this is what we did with human donor bodies what was so surprising is that regardless of all these different variables, whether we did this in the lab with mice or outdoors humans, we found really similar microbes. And so this is why we're able to build this really powerful microbial clock that will allow us to estimate the time of death. So what about the microbes involved? How did you actually figure out which microbes were there and when they came and where they came from? Right. So what we did was we took samples during decomposition. So we took a whole bunch of samples over time, and then we sequenced all the DNA in those samples, and that allowed us to identify the microbes' presence. And we not only identified bacteria, but we also looked at the microbial eukaryotes because they're really important in decomposition. And this includes things like microscopic worms called nematodes and fungi and amoeba, And so we looked at all these different organisms, and just by looking at the DNA of samples that were collected over time, this allowed us to say, okay, at time point X, we had this group of microbes, and then we had this group of microbes. So that makes it sound like most of the decomposers come from outside the body. We don't have all of our decomposers inside of us that when we die, they then begin to take apart the body. Right. So that's a really good question, and it's something that we are really interested in. So for the microbial eukaryotes, certainly those appear to be coming from the external environment. But the bacteria is a more complicated story. And so what we found was that the bacteria that become abundant during decomposition, they're really hard to find at the start of the experiment or, say, before decomposition begins. And so what we did is we really, really deeply sequenced all of our 
samples from the start of the experiment to see if we could detect the bacteria that become abundant during decomposition, what we call the decomposers. And what we found is that they're incredibly rare. They're very low abundance, and some of them can be detected in, say, the abdominal cavity. Some can be detected in the skin. Others can be detected in the soil. Some can be detected in all three. And what this sort of suggested was that these are bacteria that are fairly ubiquitous but at very low abundance, and they're very sort of opportunistic. They can grow really quickly when decomposition begins. Overall, our data suggested that when soil is present, which it was in all of our experiments, they primarily come from the soil. However, we were able to detect some of them in the abdominal cavity of the cadaver and on the skin of the cadaver. Right. I mean, that raises an interesting point. Most people don't die on the soil, if you will. They're they're packed in a coffin and then, you know, buried underground. So the decomposition there would have to rely on a different community of decomposers? It would certainly be a different set of decomposers. We actually had a study come out a little over a year ago where we decomposed mice on sterilized soil versus not. Mm -hmm. And we find that they decompose much more slowly. And the bacterial community is not as effective as much, but that microbial eukaryotic community is basically absent or it's very different. It's mostly like just a few fungi as opposed to this really diverse community of microscopic worms and other things. Having soil present is certainly a game changer. And the reason we do that is because in those sort of criminal investigations, you often find people outside that have been decomposing for a while. And so that's the type of scenario we were trying to answer with these experiments. Let's go back to the the crime scene part of this for a bit. How does the ability to get time of death from this new microbial calendar compare with previous methods? We haven't done a direct comparison yet, but in general, this is on par with forensic entomology. So forensic entomology is the use of glowfly larvae and how they develop to estimate the time since death because they're very discrete stages. On the longer term, say, months of decomposition, you can also use the succession of insects or, you know, this insect only shows up in this season. So there's biological information in insects as well. And this can be useful for sort of narrowing down that uncertainty around the time since death. Our approach is certainly of a very similar type of time frame, but we also can overcome some limitations of, for example, forensic entomology where sometimes insects aren't present in the winter. And so there can be seasons where that approach isn't really possible because it depends on insects being able to show up and find the body. And with the microbes, you die with the ones that you already host on your body and every surface on earth has microbes on them as well. And about how long are you talking about? What was the timeline that you looked at? We looked over about two to four months, depending on the experiment. What we found is that in the first 25 days, we could estimate death within about two to four days using the skin and soil microbes. And so that was really good and certainly suggests that this would be a very useful tool. What are the next steps for this? It seems like a really useful tool. How does it get into, you know, common use in criminal investigation? That's a great question. And we currently view our findings as very promising that this can become a method used by a criminal investigator. But we still have 
we still have more work to do. And so we just recently had another grant funded by the National Institutes of Justice that will allow us to better calibrate our clock. And so we're going to work with three different anthropological research facilities that are located in three different states in the U.S. And with each of them, we'll decompose three bodies per season for a year, and this will really help us calibrate the effect of location, geography, as well as seasons. And again, then we'll publish this research in a peer-reviewed journal, which is one of the important steps in getting this type of work included in the forensic science community. And so once we have this new research out there, then our collaborators who are involved with the forensic science community will help us take the next steps that are necessary for this to become used in the criminal justice system. Jessica Metcalf is a senior research associate in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado, Boulder. Migraines are a common ailment with few effective treatments. Those with extreme chronic migraines might only go a few days a month without head-splitting pain. Unfortunately, these complex headaches have proven very difficult to understand and treat. I spoke with news writer Emily Underwood about a new group of drugs currently in clinical trials that show real promise for treating and even stopping migraines. Migraines are incredibly common and hugely disabling. They're in the top 20 most disabling neurological disorders that the World Health Organization has listed. You know, C2C reports have found that about one in seven people in the U.S. get them, and that fits pretty well globally. One thing that's interesting is the prevalence seems to be roughly the same in many, many different countries all over the world. So this is not a first-world problem. That's right. It's found everywhere. And it also predominantly strikes women? Yes. The ratio is about three to one, female to male. Women are about three times as likely to get them. And specifically, they're a lot more likely to get what we call chronic migraine. Chronic migraine is when people get at least 15 or more migraine days, so a day in which they're affected by a migraine per month. About 2% of the population generally gets chronic migraines, but women are nine times as likely as men to be chronic migraineurs. That's the term researchers use is is migraineurs for people who get them. So how do I know I have a migraine and not a headache? There are a few things that set migraines apart from normal headaches. Migraineurs often get auras, which are distortions to vision. Maybe some they see sparkling lights, for example. Nausea is another common symptom. People might vomit. Sensitivity to sound and light is another classic hallmark of migraine. Most migraines follow a certain order where there's a preliminary phase, maybe a 20-minute period where the sensory distortion happens, and then it's followed by pain that can last for days. It's often localized to one side of the head, and people describe throbbing pain, and they often just need to go into a dark room and not come out for a while. That's what's going on in the person who has a migraine. That's what they're experiencing. But what about the mechanism, the physiology of it? What do we know about what happens when a person has a migraine? You know, migraines are difficult to study in part because they are so complex and the symptoms can vary so much between individuals. By about the mid-19th century, most physicians agreed that migraines were caused by abnormal blood flow in the brain. That's partly because when people get migraines, they'll feel their temples throbbing. It feels like the vessels in their head or in their brain are throbbing. 
In recent decades, the perception has shifted away from blood vessels in part because studies have shown there's not actually much correlation between abnormal blood flow and the onset of migraine or the, the pain of migraine. About 20 years ago, scientists started to look instead at this network of nerves that wraps around the head and, and innervates the face and jaw. You're talking about the trigeminal nerve, right? Right. So the trigeminal nerve, which innervates the face and head and jaw, as well as these sort of fine, small nerves that innervate the cerebral blood vessels. Over the past 20 years or so, neuroscientists have looked to these nerves, the trigeminal nerves. They appear to be hypersensitive in micro-nerves, and the question was why? You know, what makes these nerves hypersensitive? In the last decade or so, there's been a major breakthrough with the discovery of a molecule called calcitonin gene-related peptide, or CGRP. CGRP is elevated in migraineurs during a migraine attack, and even more importantly, when researchers have injected CGRP into people who are prone to migraines, they will induce a migraine. The same substance injected into people who do not get migraines, non-migraineurs, might only cause a, a mild headache. It doesn't bring on the classic migraine. So this suggested that CGRP is really important to migraines in migraineurs, that people who get migraines are somehow sensitive to this molecule. Maybe they produce more of it, maybe their neurons have more receptors for it, but that is the importance of CGRP. Right now, treatments for migraines don't target CGRP, right? They target um, serotonin? People thought for so long that migraines were related to abnormal blood flow. Most of the drugs that were developed had something to do with, with constricting the blood vessels. So you know, early on, there was a drug based on the ergot fungus called ergotamine that constricted blood vessels throughout the whole body. It was a massive vasoconstrictor, and people did seem to get some relief from that drug. Um, later, a class of drug called tryptans that narrow blood vessels only in the brain by targeting the serotonin receptor, as you said, that drug also constricts blood vessels, seems to abort migraine attacks in 50 to 60 percent of people. So these drugs can provide some relief, but again, inconsistently, and they aren't all that effective. And they have that really evil side effect. Right. Not only is it dangerous sometimes to cause too much vasoconstriction, but these drugs also cause something called migraine overuse headache. So if, if you take them too often for your migraines, your, your migraines can actually get worse and more severe. Let's talk about this new treatment that's in clinical trials right now, and it's targeting CGRP. How's it working, and uh, what kind of mechanisms are they using? So the holy grail for a migraine treatment is not that you take it when you start to feel sick and you, you know, head off the attack, but that you might be able to prevent migraines from happening altogether. That's really the goal of an effective migraine treatment. CGRP, we've learned, makes neurons that signal pain more likely to fire. Four companies are, are neck in neck right now with drugs that aim to block CRGP from doing this. All of them are antibodies that either bind directly to CGRP and sort of take it out of commission, so to speak, or they bind to the cellular receptors for CGRP and prevent the molecule from binding to cells. Now, you mentioned this is an antibody, and that's a pretty big departure for 
how we treat pain, how we treat things that happen possibly in the brain, right? There, I believe, is one other drug aimed at pain treatment that's antibody-based, but if this drug is approved, it will be the first antibody drug to treat a pain disorder. And what about the idea that it is an antibody and it's very large, it may or may not be getting into the brain. There's still some debate about precisely how these CGRP blockers are are working to stop migraines before they start. Most scientists seem to agree that because antibodies are are large molecules, they cannot cross the blood-brain barrier. Thus, they'd be acting entirely outside of the brain in the peripheral nerves. There are some researchers that argue that to work so well on, on migraine, which is obviously a, a central disorder, it's you know, certainly migraine is happening in the brain, and some researchers argue that if these drugs work, they must at least trace amounts of the antibodies must be getting into the brain, but that is still an open debate. Well, let's talk about how well they work. So far, the success rates are unusually high, especially given the large placebo effect that can often derail drugs in development for neurological disorders. Many of the participants are seeing the number of migraine days they get per month substantially reduced, and in some trials, about 15% stop getting headaches altogether. There are a number of trials going on, and they are seeing some serious response to these drugs. How much of the migraine population might they help? It's hard to tell at this point. A person's genetic background will likely be important in how well they respond to these drugs. And as the research goes forward, scientists are hoping that a better understanding of the genetic basis will help target treatment. But, you know, it's clear that this drug has a lot of potential, especially in people who suffer from migraines all the time. That's some pretty great news. And one thing I noticed in our conversations about this, I don't know if it actually made it into the article, was that there's still some debate about how triggers affect migraines and if they can be validated in a laboratory situation. Can you talk about that a little bit? If you get migraines, if you know somebody who gets migraines, you probably know that people are always worried about triggers. I used to get migraines as a child, and I remember that there were you know, certain perfumes, certain things that I would, it would make me feel so ill and I would be very sick for a couple of days afterwards. So what makes it really difficult to validate is that when physicians try to track a person's triggers, people are usually recalling them retroactively. So they say, you know, I ate this, I got a migraine, and it's been very hard to replicate the data on triggers. A lot of scientists are, are thinking now that it's not so much that people have specific triggers, although some people might. There might be an allergic reaction or inflammation could be involved. Instead, the whole nervous system is getting more sensitive in the early stages of a migraine. So whatever you encounter can feel like the trigger when you look back on the experience. One of the metaphors that a researcher mentioned to me was you know, a car with a really hyperactive alarm system. The alarms go off just because somebody walks by the car. It might be something like that where your nervous system, your, your brain is sort of already primed to respond to any number of insults. Stress could be one of them. But also it may just perceive an insult which isn't really there. The blood vessels in your head, for example, might be pulsing at a normal rate, but you feel them your nerves are sensitive, so they feel that as pain. That's not to say that nothing can induce a migraine. You even use an example in your story of someone who can give himself migraines. Absolutely. So stress is a well-validated risk factor for migraine. 
exercise is a good example, lack of sleep, skipping meals. People who are prone to migraines may need to have more regular schedules. They may need to just take especially good care of themselves to avoid attacks. Emily, you are very brave for wading into this <laughs> mysterious and murky territory that is migraine research. Thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. Emily Underwood is a staff writer for Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.